Good morning, everyone. No quotation to begin with from Martin Luther this morning, because you already had one, right? You all picked up on it? A mighty fortress is our God. Enough said, I think, from Martin Luther. Uh, Today's sermon text is found in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verses uh, 1 through 5. Uh, Today's sermon title is Bewitched, Bewitched. When Chris saw it, you can guess what he said. Stephen, are you going to wiggle your nose for us today? And I can assure you, I most certainly am not. Nor am I going to make any remarks concerning that TV show that fell somewhere between I Love Lucy and Leave it to Beaver on a weekday afternoon. I'm going to let it rest right there. Uh, The reason this sermon title, the title for this sermon is Bewitched, is because the Apostle Paul uses the word in our text. Follow along as I read in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? or by hearing with faith. And so briefly, just notice, briefly, quickly, of their condition. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It's the only place the word is used in the New Testament. Uh, It means what you think it means. To hold someone spellbound by an irresistible power. Who has bewitched you? Uh, You are being held spellbound. Something has captivated your thinking and captivated it to such a degree that uh, you are failing to exercise discernment. Uh, The Galatian professing believers, churches, they're no longer able to see the obvious. That's Paul's point. Their vision is clouded. Their perception is skewed. The issue is not a lack of information. The issue is a lack of discernment. They are bewitched. That's their condition. Notice, secondly, the cause. Paul doesn't mention it here in our text, but he certainly alludes to it elsewhere. He writes, for example, to the Corinthian church, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. What's Paul's point? Paul simply recognizes that wherever you find error, Wherever you find poor judgment, wherever you find skewed discernment, 
to the quick. Wherever you find disorder, the final cause, the ultimate cause is whom? It is the devil himself. God is a God of order. Whenever and wherever there is disorder, you can connect the dots and you can draw it all the way back to its principal cause, and it is the devil himself. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And notice thirdly, the cure. The cure. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Paul's exclamation itself points us to the cure. And I think we can sum it up in that old expression. I don't know if we use it as much anymore. Tough love. Do we still use that? I remember as a boy, as a teenager, that was really in vogue. Tough love. I, I don't hear it so much anymore. Tough love. That's what we have here in Galatians 3.1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? J.B. Phillips, if you ever pick up his translation of Scripture, you'll find it very profitable. He has some, some great insights. This text in particular is very insightful. He translates it as follows. Oh, you dear, oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. Surely... You cannot be so idiotic. Tough love. Dear idiots. Precious idiots. Those whom I hold in such high esteem and so close to my heart, you are acting like idiots. It is tough love, O oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you. And so what's going on? Melissa is going to pull up a slide behind me on the screen. And in two phrases, we'll discover exactly what is going on in the churches of Galatia. You'll remember that the Apostle Paul, he, his home base, if you like, is the city of Antioch uh, in Syria. So picture Jerusalem on the map in your mind's eye if you can. Uh, move up the eastern shore of the Mediterranean. And you enter the region of Syria. You come to the city of Antioch. That's his home church. And from there, Paul is sent out on his three missionary journeys. And just picture modern-day Turkey, modern-day Greece. That's pretty well the extent of his three missionary journeys. On that first journey, he's somewhere, geographically speaking, in the middle, south center of modern-day Turkey, what was called Asia Minor back in his day. And he has established several churches in this region known as Galatia. He's moved on his way. Subsequently, what has happened? A Jews have infiltrated the church and they are making a right mess of things. And they are seeking to undermine the Apostle Paul. And basically, they are levying two charges. They're bringing two accusations. Or they're questioning, rather, they're questioning two things. Firstly, they are questioning the authority of his mission. Is he a real apostle? Is he like the other apostles? And secondly, they are questioning the accuracy of his message. And in sum, essentially, what they are saying is as follows. In the churches of Galatia. Uh, that man, the Apostle Paul, 
who started these churches. We don't dispute it. But you know what? He has corrupted. He has distorted. He has twisted the pure gospel that he received from the other apostles. And thereby they are undermining, they are challenging the authority of his mission and the accuracy of his message. You know, we actually do hear the same thing today. I wasn't going to make any comments in this regard until three days ago, I received an email. And I don't know why I received this email. I don't know how I got on this email list. It's a mystery to me. But uh, here's the gist of the email. Uh, I am a publicist with the Fig Tree Publicity Company in New York City. I'd like to offer you a free copy of the book, Do You Really Believe Him? That's the title. Do you really believe him? The subtitle, listen closely. Understanding how Christianity betrayed Jesus and his narrow path while it embraced Paul and his broad road. What is the subtitle insinuating? That Jesus and Paul are diametrically opposed. That Paul has actually corrupted the teaching of the Lord Jesus. The email go, went on to say, the author is Eve Diahani ben Avraham, the head teacher and spiritual guide of Kehal Yah, a congregation of the original Hebrew people. Ben Avraham undertakes an impartial and in-depth review of both the Torah and the New Testament to demonstrate that Christians do not in any manner follow Jesus' teachings, which lead to the narrow path of salvation, but rather they follow the Apostle Paul's teachings, which are diametrically opposed to Jesus and which lead only to the broad road of destruction. And what teaching of Jesus is supposedly in view? It is the Torah. He is positing this is his argument that Jesus taught that it is absolutely necessary to keep the Torah. That is the narrow way that leads to salvation. The other apostles taught the same thing. But the apostle Paul diverged from the teaching of Jesus. Christianity has followed the apostle Paul. And in so doing, Christianity is now on the broad way that leads to destruction. You see, Paul corrupted what he received. Paul distorted the pure gospel. And the pure gospel is this. Yes, Jesus, the Messiah, that's fine. Yes, Jesus died on the cross, that's fine. But if you really want to be a follower of the Lord Jesus, the Torah, my friend, back to the law, back under the law. And so we see here we are 2,000 years later, and some people are saying exactly the same thing. Do I add, do I say a wee bit more? I think I'll say a little more. Since moving to Texas, coming up on nine years ago, I have, I have never met, I had never met to that point, so many people enamored with the Torah, professing Christian. Uh, within this messianic camp, Zionist camp, 
Many of them, varying degrees, don't misunderstand. And some I would have very little problem with. Some I would have great problem with. But the number of people I have met who seem to be enamored with Old Testament feasts, Old Testament rites, Old Testament ceremonies, enamored with the Torah, as if it represents some higher plane of religiosity and spirituality. I raise this just in case. I'm inclined to think not, but I'm a, I'm a realist. Just in case someone in this room falls into that camp, my admonition to you this morning is this. You've been bewitched. You have been bewitched. Unbelievably so. Oh, my friend, the Christian faith is not found in the Torah. The Christian faith is not found in the feasts and the festivals and the priesthood and all of that stuff. That stuff is a shadow and it's gone. And the substance belongs to the Lord Jesus. He is the temple. He is the priesthood. He is the sacrificial system. Paul's really going to drive that home. He's going to put, so to speak, proverbially speaking, the final nail in the coffin when he gets to the end of chapter 3 and, he's going to and into chapter 4. He is going to demonstrate this reality where the law, where the Torah, the Mosaic Covenant actually fits in the great economy of God. And his argument is simply this. It was a parenthesis and it was nothing more. The reality, the substance has come and his name is Jesus Christ. Maybe that was wasted air. I don't know. But I say it, I put it out there pastorally, just in case, that uh, this idea, this notion uh, that Paul is combating 2,000 years ago has not gone away. And it takes many different shapes, forms, and sizes in our own day. And I do pray none of us are bewitched, but we're actually exercising good, solid, biblical discernment in evaluating these things. Enough said. Slide two, Melissa. Yes, back to Melissa. There you go. So how does Paul respond to this charge? There it is. The authority of his mission and the accuracy of his message. How does he respond? You know how he responds. How? It's this book, this letter, this epistle to the churches of Galatia. And there you have, I've been told, do not go any farther than the wall or they lose the shot so there we go. I think I'm in a good place. There you go. Uh, there you have his response. Uh, there you have uh, the gist of his reaction to this charge that has been levied against him. Somehow it's come to his attention. Someone has brought word. Paul, this is what they're saying back in the churches of Galatia. So Paul grabs up his pen and he writes this epistle. He begins with a salutation and caution. And in the salutation, he identifies those two problems, those two issues, right? The authority of his mission and the accuracy of his message. Right at the outset, he establishes the, these are the points of contention, these two issues. And then he issues his warning, his caution, you're deserting the gospel. You're abandoning the gospel for a different gospel, which really isn't a different gospel. It's a false gospel. And then we enter into the meat of his letter, uh, where he responds again to those two issues, the gospel revealed, the gospel explained, the gospel defended, and the gospel applied. The first two points, the gospel revealed, the gospel explained from chapter 1, verse 11, 
all the way through to chapter 2, verse 21, there he is addressing the first point of contention, the authority of his mission. And so in those two sections, you see it. The gospel revealed and the gospel explained. He is speaking directly to that charge. Those who are seeking to undermine the authority of his ministry, the authority of his mission. And then in the next two, the gospel defended and the gospel applied. He is speaking directly to the second issue, the accuracy of his message. He gives the war a word of warning again, word of caution, and then he wraps it all up with a benediction. Now, where are we? You know where we are in this study, right? We've come, we've come a long way. We're co we've covered a lot of ground. We're all the way to the end of the second point. The gospel explained, chapter 2, verse 21. That's where we ended last Lord's Day. And so today, what are we doing? We're entering into a new section. The gospel defended chapter 3, verse 1, to chapter 5, verse 12. And Melissa is going to bring up one more slide. Good job, Melissa. There it is. The gospel defended. Again, chapter 3, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 5, verse 12. It's a big chunk. It's a very significant section. How can we get our minds around the, the line of argument? Paul's thought flow. Basically, he makes four arguments followed by an appeal. His first argument is from experience. By experience, by that phrase, do not misunderstand what I am saying. I am not saying that Paul is looking authoritatively to experience. No, he is looking authoritatively to an experience that is authenticated by and confirmed by Scripture. So he makes this first argument from experience. Then he's going to make a second argument, very lengthy. Chapter 3, verse 6 to chapter 4, verse 7, directly from Scripture. And he's going to talk about one man. Who is he? Abraham. If you can go way back to when we studied the book of Romans, it is precisely what he did in the fourth chapter of Romans. He's going to do the same thing right here. He's going to make an argument from Abraham, an argument from Scripture. And then in chapter 4, verse 8 through to verse 20, he's going to revert to experience, a third argument, and then a fourth argument in chapter 4, verse 21 through 31 from Scripture, and then a, a heartfelt plea or appeal in chapter 5, the first 12 verses. There you have it. There's a very helpful outline of this third section, the gospel defended. At the end, we're going to have an examination. And I'm going to give you the questions beforehand. There they are, four questions. And if at the end you can faithfully answer these four questions, guess what, my friend? You've got it. You understand exactly what Paul is saying and the point he is making in this big section, chapter 3, verse 1, through to chapter 5, verse 12. The first question is this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Answer me. That's going to be the first question. The second question is this. Is the law then contrary to the promises or the promise of God? The third question. 
What then has become of the blessing you felt? And the fourth question, do you not listen to the law? And so I don't know, but definitely months from now, two or three months from now, when the dust settles and the smoke clears, that's a bit much, but when we get to the end of chapter 5, verse 12, you should be able to answer those four questions and you will have your mind around exactly what Paul is arguing in this section. And so where are we today? We're with the first argument, the argument from experience. You can take that slide away, Melissa. We're done with the slides. It's a very simple argument. Look with me again at verse 1 of chapter 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You're walking around in a stupor. You lack spiritual discernment. Let me remind you, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You were not present in Jerusalem when he was crucified. I am not suggesting you were. I am not now suggesting that we got together and we had some stupendous uh, drama play in which Christ's crucifixion was displayed through actors and all the, uh, everything else that, that goes along with that. No, Paul is describing his own preaching. He is making reference to his faithful proclamation of the word as he traveled through that region, as he made his way through those cities, and as he proclaimed the gospel, one central recurring theme was this, Christ crucified. And he preached it with such passion and the Spirit of God worked with such power and influence and conviction, touching both their mind and their heart, that it was as though Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. It became real to them. It became vivid to them. Dare I say, it became life to them. Something's happened. They are now, now living in accordance with what they had learned. They are no longer seeing. They no longer see. They no longer perceive. They no longer discern what is so blatantly obvious. The significance of Christ's crucifixion. And so what does Paul do? He appeals to experience. He asks four rhetorical questions. That's all he does here, folks. They're just four rhetorical questions. They are not complicated questions. The answers to these questions are very simple. First rhetorical question, verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? By works of the law, by observing Torah, through circumcision, through dietary laws, through the sacrificial system, through the feasts of Jehovah, through all of those laws and all of those intricate requirements of the law. Is that how you receive the Spirit? Or by hearing with faith? The answer is obvious. Paul is when we heard by faith. It was when you showed up here. 
And it is when you proclaim Christ crucified. And Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified that we believed. And upon believing, we received the Holy Spirit. Paul's argument is what? Then why are you deserting? Why are you abandoning? Why are you now acting contrary to your own experience? Rhetorical question number two, verse three. Tough love. Are you so foolish? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Recognizing your own conversion experience and recognizing how you were justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Recognizing, perceiving, and understanding how you have been brought into union with Christ. The Spirit of God now dwells in you. You've received the gift of the Spirit. You now have life. Why would you now think you can revert to a shadow and actually make progress in the Christian life? Do you? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? What answer does Paul expect? He expects the answer, no. Fourth verse, third rhetorical question. Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, he's holding out hope. He's not yet quite convinced that it was in vain. He's not yet quite convinced that these individuals, individuals are lost. There's still this inkling in Paul's mind that these are believers. These are sincere believers who have been led astray by false teachers. And, and it's not vain. With, with, with these questions and with his arguments, he'll be able to bring them back into the fold, so to speak. Did you suffer? You know, when I was with you and I preached the gospel, I mean, you saw how the Jews reacted. Go back and read the narrative in Acts 13, 14, right, and on. Uh, you know the opposition we experienced. You know the hostility. And some of you became the, the object, the recipients of that hostility. And you suffered for the name of Christ. W was that in vain? What was going on there? What was the purpose in all that? And again, he's expecting a negative answer. No, no, Paul, it wasn't in vain. And then one final rhetorical question, the fourth into the fifth verse. And it's basically the first rhetorical question repeated with a little nuance. Does he, God, who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And so you not only your conversion, your conversion can only be explained by an efficacious work of the Spirit of God. Uh, the, 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 the miracles that you saw uh, performed before you, those miracles, signs and wonders that accompanied the apostolic witness and ministry, uh, how do you explain those things? Uh, those miracles that happened within you, within you and among your relationships, you know, uh, upon seeing Christ publicly portrayed as crucified and upon believing and upon receiving the Spirit, oh, the transformation. Oh, the miracle, the miraculous work of God's grace in your lives. The marriages that were restored. The addictions that were broken. The relationships that were, that were healed. The perspective that was absolutely, absolutely changed. All, all of those miraculous workings. Oh, my friends, did God do all that by works of the law? No! You know the answer to that question. It was all done by hearing 
with faith. So Paul's really trying to put it to rest, isn't he? He is really trying to undermine this idea that his message, the gospel that he is proclaiming, is somehow contrary to what the other apostles are proclaiming, somehow contrary to what the Lord Jesus Christ himself has proclaimed, the Apostle Paul is demonstrating from their own experience, their own experience, that this is the gospel. The gospel is that God will justify. God will declare righteous. God will receive into a right standing all those who are one with his Son through faith. That's how you were converted, my friends, at Galatia. That is what you heard me preach. And that is how vivid it was as you saw Christ publicly portrayed as crucified. And you received the Spirit and all the blessings that accompany the Spirit. Do you not therefore understand how ridiculous it is to fall for this idea that you're now hearing that true spirituality... True religiosity, true Christianity is found back in the shadow of the Torah. How ridiculous, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you. I think the text, as we look at it, read it, study it, the text requires us to ask and answer two questions straightforward and to the point. Question number one is this. Have you, is it possible that you have been bewitched? We need to answer that question, don't we, this morning? Is it possible that we have been bewitched? As I reflected on this most of the week, and thought of possible ways, possible ways in which perhaps some, even in our midst, have, have been bewitched, I started to, to keep a list. And uh, I got close to 15. So there's no way. There's absolutely no way. And so what I've done, and you can thank me later, is I've narrowed it down to four. Just four. And I think these, these are four real dangers. The danger of bewitchment. The danger of being held under a spell uh, that will invariably lead you away from Christ, Christ publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask these, put these to you by way of question. Is it possible you have been bewitched by a legalistic view of salvation? Is that possible, friend? There you are. You're sitting right there. Is it possible you've been bewitched by that? Bewitched by a legalistic view of salvation. Just, just you and me right now. Forget the people around you. Just you and me. That as you take stock and look, take a little look within and evaluate yourself, that when it is all said and done, when it comes to the matter of salvation, you really do think... Um, what sets you apart is something about you. You really do think that. It is the life you lived or maybe the life you never lived because you were the good one. It is your spirituality. It is your church affiliation. 
It is the decisions, the choices you think you've made. Is it possible? Is it possible, my friend, that, um, you know, when you just evaluate things, you know, um, yeah, I get, what, I get what Stephen's saying. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I get it. Amen. But I sure am glad about that. I sure am glad about this. That surely this must count for something. If you fall into that pattern of thinking, friend, you have been bewitched. You have been bewitched. And the spell must be broken. Second question. Is it possible that you have been bewitched by a therapeutic view of Christianity? A therapeutic, Freudian view of Christianity. Much of what we hear within evangelicalism today. Where the Christian faith has simply become a way to get through life. The Christian faith has become a crutch. The Christian faith has become an exercise in psychological survival. The Christian faith is now presented as the pursuit of self-realization and self-fulfillment. And God is simply a means to an end, which is what? Me and my happiness and uh, me living with myself. Is it possible, friend? I think it's more than possible. Because if you're a reader and you read anything, if you're on the internet and you're looking at blogs, if um, you're listening to some of the speakers out there, this is everywhere. It is everywhere. Uh, it has inundated American evangelicalism, a therapeutic view of salvation, that in actual fact, the gospel is about helping me be who I want to be. If you kind of lean that way, you know, I do sort of think that way. I want to speak very pastorally, lovingly, but tough love this morning. You have been bewitched bewitched, and you must awaken from your stupor. Third question is this. Is it possible you have been bewitched by a subjective view of spirituality? A subjective view of spirituality. This too is everywhere. What I like to call God within-ism. God within-ism. Me and God and all of my feelings, all of my inclinations, all of my impulses, it's God speaking to me. It's God leading me, and that's my spirituality. Yeah, the Bible's a good book, and I read the Bible, and I get lots of profitable things out of the Bible. But my relationship with God is not defined by objective truth as found in His Word. My relationship with God is defined by my subjective experiences of Him. Because I think, I'm convinced, there's some sort of ontological kinship between God and my soul, whereby I'm the recipient of direct revelation. Do I name names? Beth Moore. I mean, that's... She's all over that today. I don't know if anybody's reading her. I'm not, but I'm, it's possible some are. Should I not name names? Does that make you feel uncomfortable? I could go on and on and name names. This is everywhere. A subjective view of spiritual, spirituality. And if you fall in that, I find myself I have to fight against that because there's so many voices speaking it into our experience. Isn't it? it is everywhere, all-consuming. You find yourself there, my friend. You've been bewitched. You've been bewitched. You're under a spell. And we must awaken from our stupor. One last question. Aren't you so thankful right now there are not 15? Number four. 
Is it possible you have been bewitched by a moralistic view of discipleship? A moralistic view of discipleship meaning what? That when you think of the Lord Jesus and the Jesus you want, you want a Jesus who winks at the pursuit of materialism. You want a Jesus who embraces your casual commitment. And you want a Jesus who accepts you and loves you just the way you are. No call to self-denial. The call is to self-fulfillment. No call to take up your cross and carry it every day. No, a call to live a happy, clappy life. Uh, that too is prevalent, isn't it? I think it's very prevalent. And if, uh, if you find yourself wrestling with that mindset, if you find on occasion you're slipping in that direction, or maybe this morning slipping, maybe you're there. It's all en encompassing. Then again, in the context of Galatians 3, I would invite you to consider the possibility the very real possibility that you have been bewitched and you need to awaken from your stupor. There's the first question. Have you been bewitched? The second question is this, far more encouraging, far more encouraging. Have you seen Christ publicly portrayed as crucified? Have you, friend? Have you seen Christ publicly portrayed as crucified? Well, Stephen, do that for me. It's easy to do. Just go back to Galatians 1. Go all the way back. Flip back a couple of pages. All the way back to the Apostle Paul's salutation. And look with me at what he says in the third verse of chapter 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Is that a vivid reality in your experience? To deliver us from the present evil age. Does that strike a chord at all? According to the will of our God and Father. There is Christ publicly portrayed as crucified. Three all-important truths. Number one, he gave himself an offering up of himself. Why? For our sins. It was my sin that nailed him there. And he gave himself up for our sins. Why? Secondly, to deliver, to rescue, to redeem us from the present evil age. And he gave himself up for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Thirdly, why? According to the will of our God and Father. It was according to and as an expression of God's overwhelming, superabounding goodness to undeserving sinners. You want to add a fourth truth? Flip over to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And what does Paul say right at the end of that verse? In reference to the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Have you seen Christ publicly portrayed as crucified, I am not. I am not asking you if you understand it. Although that is very important, that is not my question. The question is this, have you seen Christ publicly portrayed as crucified? I am not asking if you've had a dream. 
I'm not asking about any vision. I'm not asking about any physical manifestation. The question is simply this, that when it comes to Christ crucified, is this truth vivid to you? Is it as real as the person you're sitting beside, the church, the, the, the chair you're, you're sitting on, the Bible in your lap? Is it real to you? Is it vivid? How do I know if it's vivid? How do I know if I've really seen Christ publicly portrayed as crucified? When we see him, three things happen. The first is this, quickly. Number one, it produces conviction. So I know when it's vivid. I know when I have seen Christ publicly portrayed as crucified. I know because there will be conviction. There will be conviction for sin. There will be poverty of spirit. There will be humility. Martin Luther, we began with him, a mighty fortress is our God. Luther, I've seen it in a couple of places in his writings. I carry the nails of Calvary in my pocket. What does he mean? I carry the nails of Calvary in my pocket. He means simply this. It was my sin that nailed him there. Oh, and the conviction that arises from seeing a crucified Savior and the suffering my sin caused. The hymn writer declares, He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. When it is vivid, there will be conviction. Secondly, when it is vivid, it will produce comfort. Not only conviction, yes, conviction and humility, poverty of spirit, as we see our sin and our sin as the cause of his unspeakable suffering and torment, but the comfort that then comes from this vision, this sight of a crucified Savior, as we realize this is an expression of his love, that this is indeed a substitutionary sacrifice, that this is the one mediator between God and man suffering from me, whereby I can now come confidently, confessing my sin, repenting of my sin, turning from my sin, looking to him and looking to him alone for salvation and discovering that on the other side, who stands? A welcoming father who is willing to embrace me in his son. And love me as I stand in his son. Receive me as I am one with his beloved. And declare me just, righteous in his sight. Because I stand now clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Oh, there is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its work. It sounds like music in my ear. The sweetest name on earth. It tells me of a Savior's love who died to set me free. It tells me of his precious blood, the sinner's perfect plea. Oh, it produces conviction. It produces comfort. And when it is vivid, it produces what? Change. I now love him. And because I love him, I want to do what? I want to please him. 
Thomas Manton wrote years ago, Christ took our misery that we might have his glory. Resonate with us at all? Christ took our misery that we might have his glory. Is that vivid to anyone this morning? Oh, are we discerning this spiritual truth, this spiritual reality, this expression of his love for us? When it is real, oh, it produces change. We obey, obey the imperative of personal holiness because now we want to please him in our lives. We want to please him by conforming to his likeness. We want to please him by being like him, being like him. And we submit ourselves to the imperative of extravagant devotion. Our desire now is to know his will and to do it. Both the imperative of personal holiness and the imperative of extravagant devotion. They're expressed there for us in the verse we considered last Lord's Day, Galatians 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The imperative of personal holiness and the imperative of extravagant devotion, or as the hymn writer so eloquently put it, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Our Heavenly Father, we do indeed praise you for your word. We praise you for the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand it and inclines our hearts to it. And so we pray that he might do his work in our midst this day for the furtherance of your kingdom, for the glory of your name. And we do indeed intercede on behalf of those unbelievers, unbelievers present with us and ask that you would give them a vivid sight of your son, the Lord Jesus crucified and what it means to know sins forgiven and the hope of eternal life in him and in him alone. This we ask in his most precious name. Amen.